Yeah, very good afternoon to you. Welcome to Wednesday's Richie Allen Radio Show, broadcasting live from the heart of Salford. I'm Richie Allen, and as usual, I've got two very interesting people for you to meet today. Good to be with you, so it is. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, you might be aware that there are referenda. Two referendums will be held in Ireland on the 8th of of March this year. The Irish government approved the draft wording for two proposed changes to the Constitution, providing a wider concept of family and women's role in society. It'll be held on International Women's Day. Um, This has proved controversial, to say the least. Jana London will return to The Richie Allen Show to discuss this issue at this very hour. Jana London will be with me this hour. Don't miss that. And a little bit later on, we're going to be talking about climate change. And I'm looking forward to you meeting a man called Professor Lucian Gill. An incredibly interesting man. Um, He watched the growing panic spread through the media and the government as the global temperature rises would have catastrophic effects. He was sceptical about this and he began to examine global warming even caused by CO2. Has that begun a journey for him? We'll discuss that. He's produced a film. He has a book talking about why there is a relationship between temperatures at ground and air level and the water concentration of the soil. You do not want to miss this. Professor Lucy and Gill later on in the programme. Wednesday's show, reach out to me via the website or via the app. Download the Blooming app, why don't you? Yeah, download the app. The Richie Allen Show this week is sponsored by NutraHealth365.com. Join support. Do check out NutraHealth365.com. Now, begone January it's the 31st, isn't it, today? Begone for another year, you bassa, you, you bassa, you fuppin' bassa. Hate January. No idea why I do hate it. I'm not a man for the dark winter. Not anymore. So it's uh, pretty much done. We're into Feb then. They're promising us some cold weather to come, but who cares? Before long, we'll be into March. We'll be seeing the daffodils around the parks. And that'll be something to cheer about. Now, we, Jimmy Cranky, as she has been dubbed, Scotland's former First Minister, and the woman at the helm during the Covid years. Remember them? Remember the Covid years? Nicola Sturgeon, the little troll, was up before the Covid inquiry today, giving evidence. She's still giving evidence right now. She says that none of the decisions she made during the pandemic were based on political considerations or trying to advance the cause of independence. She teared up. She teared up. She fought back tears as she said part of her... Brace yourself now, you might become upset. Part of her wished that she hadn't been the First Minister when the pandemic struck altogether now. Oh, wished I hadn't have had the job, really. Um, She says she did not use informal communications like WhatsApp to reach decisions or to have substantial discussions. We'll just have to take Cranky's word for it because she admitted deleting her messages. She deleted them. Would you like to hear the exchange on the deleted message between the King's Council, 
the lawyer and Nicola Sturgeon. Sure, it makes for fairly interesting listening. Have a listen. You obviously didn't have those on your own devices because you deleted them, hadn't you? I didn't retain them in line with the... You deleted them. Uh, I didn't retain them. The, the procedure I've already talked about. Are you... I talked about it. I talked about it. Creating a distinction between deletion no, and retaining. No, no. Um, you had deleted them, had you not? I think de- deletion, I think... Um, Forgive me. Listen, you ginger muppet. You deleted the messages, right? Stop this old crap now about you didn't retain them. You deleted them. You pressed delete. You highlighted the messages and then you sent them to the recycle bin, didn't you? And then later on, you emptied the recycle bin, didn't you, Nicola? I think it sounds as if it was a sort of, uh, you know, not bothering to check whether any information was being retained. I was very thorough, and not just in the pandemic, but in all my working government to... In deleting my messages. ...ensure uh, that things were appropriately appropriately recorded, but in line with the advice I'd always been given... In line? ...since my first day in government, probably, was not to retain Mm. uh, conversations like that on a phone that Mm. could be lost or stolen and therefore not secure. Uh, There is some truth to this. I I would imagine, I do imagine, that anybody taking, anybody appointed to or elected to an office of some distinction, some merit, some public interest, you might be told that, you might be informed, maybe it's best to be careful about the messages retained on your phone, lest the phone fall into the wrong hands. I do get that, but this is WhatsApp messages. They're a bit more secure, and you're discussing Scotland's approach to the pandemic, so you should have known that these would be, maybe, interested, these might be interesting for any future inquiry into the handling. She's lying. But did you delete them? Did you delete them? Yes. Yes. And as far as the other messages are concerned that you couldn't produce yourself uh, between you and all these others, you deleted all of those as well? In the manner that I've... uh, And after the process that I have set out, yes. Yes, you little bollocks. Then he brings up a conversation that Sturgeon had with a journalist for Channel 4. Now, this is embarrassing. This, I suppose, highlights, if anything else, probably that which we knew already, that Nicola, and God love Nicola, she's no different to any other politician, is a lying sack of excrement. This is interesting. Um, you were asked a question by a journalist from Channel 4 um, it, it, where he, he asked you at, at that very press conference in August 2021, Scottish Government has a patchy record of disclosing evidence when asked to do so. Hilarious. Back in 2021, a journalist from Channel 4 said, listen, you're not the best in the world now at disclosing evidence when you're required to. So this is like three years ago, right? Um, wh- wh- how can we trust that when all of this is over when the COVID is over and everybody is jabbed and they're all happy, that um, we'll be able to we'll be able to extract from you any information we deem to be appropriate and in the public interest. Can you guarantee to the bereaved families that you will disclose emails, WhatsApps, private emails, if you've been using them, whatever, that nothing will be off limits to the inquiry? You responded, I think if you understand statutory public inquiries, you would know that even if I wasn't prepared to give that assurance, which, for the avoidance of doubt, I am, that I wouldn't have the ability. The little bollocks, right? So in 2021, she was asked by a journalist, you know, will, will you disclose all of the stuff to the families? Well, even if I didn't want to, I would have to, because those are the rules, blah, blah, blah. At that stage, she knew she was deleting messages. The Liar. The Liar. He asked specific questions about informal means of communication, including WhatsApps, uh, but you knew by that stage that your WhatsApps had been destroyed. But I also knew that anything of any uh, relevance or substance... Ah, shut up, Cranky. Yeah, well, I, d- b- the stuff I deleted um, wasn't really of any substance. Okay. But that wasn't the question you were asked. You were asked the question as to whether you would disclose emails, WhatsApps, private emails, if you've been using them, whatever, 
you didn't ask you the question as to whether the material that was contained within the discussions uh, exchanged by those media was recorded on the corporate record. He asked whether the emails, WhatsApps, private emails, whatever, would be disclosed, and you gave an assurance that they would be. And I, you know... And it went on like that for a while. Jimmy Cranky giving evidence to the covert inquiry, which is, which is one massive whitewash. It doesn't matter what she does or doesn't say, but it's interesting to hear them, to see them squirm in the in the witness chair. It is exactly eight and one half minutes past the hour of four o'clock. This is the Richie Allen Show. I'm Richie Allen, live from Salford. Andrew Bridgen was in the news this morning. We'll talk about him being in the news in a moment. After he made the news, he was given a question at Prime Minister's Question Time, which occurs every Wednesday at noon. I've told you this before. You should be doing your homework. You should know by now. Anyway, so they get up and they ask questions of Sunak for 30, 35 minutes. The leader of the opposition gets to ask a series of questions. And it's uh, then sent out to the backbenchers. Andrew Bridgen, who lost the Tory whip, who was kicked out of the Conservative Party. Right over, over accusations of anti-Semitism, which were completely baseless. So Bridgen was given a question today. What did Bridgen ask the Prime Minister? Andrew Bridgen, thank you, Mr Speaker. More than two decades ago, the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, misled this House by promoting and endorsing... The guy who's groaning when Bridgen is speaking, I'd love to bitch-slap that fucker back to the Stone Age. I know who it is, I think. I'd love to bitch slap him so hard the guy's ancestors would feel it. The cheek of him. He's going to ask a question about vaccines. The cheek of the guy groaning and moaning. You know the cheek of him. More than two decades ago, the then Prime Minister, Tony Blair, misled this House by promoting and endorsing the Post Office Horizon IT system as perfect. Yeah, come on, Andy. Blair misled the House on far bigger issues now than the Post Office scandal, you know? Saddam Hussein has the capability of launching against the UK in 15 minutes. He has weapons of mass destruction. A little bit more, maybe, serious than the post office scandal. But I see where he's going with this. Protecting the large corporation that created it and causing untold harm and damage and misery to innocent people. Can the current Prime Minister think of anything he has promoted in partnership with huge businesses as safe and effective, which has ultimately harmed the British people? And will he use this opportunity to correct that safe and effective statement, or will he choose the same line as Tony Blair, sit back, do nothing, and let the misery just continue to pile up? Prime Minister. Do you hear the response of the Speaker of the House, Lindsay Hoyle? Do you hear him? Do you hear the disdain in the voice of the Speaker? Listen who's supposed to be impartial, completely and utterly impartial in matters of the House and in matters of discourse. He's only supposed to keep order and keep it ticking along. Prime Minister. Do you hear Hoyle, Prime Minister? Mr Speaker, as we've been clear, the Horizon scandal is a terrible miscarriage of justice and we're doing everything that we can to make it right. Uh, to what he was more broadly insinuating, let me be unequivocal from this dispatch box that COVID vaccines are safe, Mr Speaker. Yeah, to, to loud cheers of support there from the House, Sunak saying the COVID vaccines are safe. I don't know what to make of Bridgen. And it isn't because he turned down the opportunity to appear on this programme when he was a Tory MP. He turned down the opportunity to come on with me, despite the listening numbers I can boast, right? And he, he, he turned it down because of what had happened to Desmond Swain, the Tory MP, who was threatened with being kicked out of the party for coming on the Richie Allen show. I don't mind that. He made his decision. He since left. He got kicked out of the party anyway, which is ironic, right? But I really don't know what to make of him. 
because this point is a point he has made previously at Prime Minister's Questions. Why doesn't he drop the names of some of those who have been destroyed by the jabs into his question? I don't understand why he wouldn't frame his question like that. You know, well, uh, would, Prime Min- would the Prime Minister like to tell and then name half a dozen people who have been wrecked by the COVID jabs? You know, there are many more than half a dozen, but he could name half a dozen. And would you like to assure those people that the COVID jabs are safe and effective? What should happen with those people? But he doesn't. Beginning to wonder a little bit about Bridgen. But anyway, speaking of Bridgen, um, he was in the press this morning, or I heard him mention this morning, that he has invited an MEP from Germany, from Germany's Alternative for Deutschland party. He's invited the MEP to come to Parliament to discuss vaccine safety. And a lot of MPs are not happy at all about a conspiracy theorist being invited to the House of Commons to give an address. So there's a bit of pushback, a bit of blowback on that. The Liberal Democrat MP Leila Moran said, Andrew Bridgen's fringe views and torrid misinformation have absolutely no place in the House of Commons. Bridgen and his collection of conspiracies have constantly brought our nation into the gutter. And this latest meeting adds another page to his catalogues of errors, to his catalogue of errors. Bridgen's fringe views and torrid misinformation have brought the House of Commons and our nation into the gutter, said Leila Moran. Every now and then I watch Little Nicky with Adam Sandler, because I like Adam Sandler. I like him. I like that scene where Hitler is brought out every day to have a pineapple rammed up his back passage with a, with a, with a sledgehammer. And the pineapples get bigger and bigger. I, I'd like to think that in the next life, that's people like Leila Moran, who must know that the COVID jabs are killing people, destroying the lives of people. I'd like to imagine a similar fate for people like Leila Moran. Yes, yes, I've actually... Yes, if you're wondering, have you just suggested, Richie, have you just fantasised about Leila Moran having a pineapple rammed up her back passage with a sledgehammer in hell? Yes, I have, but I wouldn't say it's a fantasy. I would say it would be karma if the devil does exist. These are the most disgusting people on planet Earth, aren't they? The ones who know, and yet they continue to participate in the cover-up, which is what Moran is doing, participating in the cover-up. A Tulip Sadiq, ridiculous name, Labour Party MP, was on Sky News with Kay Burley today, and Kay wanted to know what did Tulip Sadiq think about, well, the scandal of Andrew Bridgen inviting a German MEP to come and peddle her conspiracy theories? I see that Andrew Bridgen, according to one of my papers this morning, um, wants to bring uh, a far-right... That's Far-right. That's how she's been described, politician. Barley's another one for the sledgehammer and the pineapples, right? ...to speak at the House of Commons or within the uh, estate of uh, the Palace of Westminster to talk about... The, the damage that vaccines can cause. Is that something that should be allowed? My God, should it be allowed that we discuss the damage caused by the vaccines that are not really vaccines, they're actually gene therapy products, which were, which were developed in a matter of weeks, months, with no long-term safety data. We forced people, coerced people into taking them. Many of those people are gravely ill or dead now, and all for a fucking virus that was harmless for most people in the country. That's the truth of it, Kay, the ginger ninja burly. Asking, is it appropriate for somebody to come and talk about vaccine harms? What do you think Tulip Sadiq with the ridiculous name says? Go on. 
I haven't seen that piece of news, but who is, I mean, who is the far-right person? She is a German far-right politician. Who doesn't believe in vaccines. Barley's such an ignorant bastard, she doesn't even know her name. I mean, I can tell you, I am unashamedly a champion of vaccines. I There's another one for the pineapples. stood in front of the Royal Free Hospital during COVID and encouraged people to take the COVID vaccine. So I wonder when Tulip Sadiq encouraged people outside the hospital to take the vaccine, did she take names and addresses? And is there any chance that she's checked up on some of those people just to make sure that none of them came to any harm? I wonder. So for me, this would be unacceptable. Okay, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Tulip. Thanks for your propaganda. Now get the fuck out of the studio because there's another propagandist waiting to come on after the break. 16 and one half minutes past the hour. This is the Richie Allen Show with me, Richie Allen, broadcasting as usual, live from BBG Towers. It's the only, it's the only national monument in Salford. It isn't really. Where am I now? I have no idea. Your messages are coming in. Keep them coming in. Download the app. Send a message instantly to me through the app or use the website richieallen.co.uk. Sometime in late February, March, the website will go offline for a week or 10 days and then it'll come back and it'll be different with different features and stuff. For the moment, I'm not doing very much with it. I've only got, you know, I've only got one pair of hands. I'm not like Bruce Forsyth in the three hands washing up liquid ad. I've only got one pair of hands. So at the moment, I can't do any of that. Right, it's um, time for something else, I suppose. This made me giggle today. And as you know, I've got a warped sense of humour. You might not laugh. And if you don't, I don't care because I can't see you. So therefore, I won't be embarrassed if my attempt at humour falls flat, as it so often does. But uh, James O'Brien had his number. um, A listener had his number this morning. You know, O'Brien spends most of his time criticising people whom he never interviews. Um, people like, well, I mean, they are despicable people, people like Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. But one of his listeners um, caught Tim by the short and curlies today, and this did make me giggle. I believe you're often late to the game. Now, whether you, you're, I don't know what's in your heart, I don't know you, but, but there's so many things where you will believe something, then you'll change, be it Boris. No, Brexit. never. No, 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 no. No, I'm not having that. You, you were a Boris supporter. No, you I wasn't. Were. I was not a Boris supporter. I was not a Boris supporter, he says. You were a Boris supporter. No, you I wasn't. Were. I was not a Boris supporter. He was not. I voted for him to be mayor of London in 2008. What? I voted for him to be mayor of London in 2008. <laughs> what was the first bit again? You were a Boris supporter. No, you I were. wasn't. I was not a Boris supporter. I voted for him to be mayor of London in 2008. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was never. I was not a Boris Johnson supporter. I voted for him to be mayor of London in 2008. And he goes on to give a reason. Oh, he's disgusting, O'Brien. He goes on to say that it was a choice between, at the time, Boris Johnson or Ken Livingston. So he had to choose Boris over Ken because Ken's despicable, of course. Ken. Ken Livingston, who, if I remember, was brought down by discussing the Havre agreement. The agreement, the agreement, the signed agreement, which even had a coin commemorated, a coin minted to commemorate it, the agreement whereby the Nazis would transfer um, German Jews to Palestine. And Ken Livingston discussed this one time in context, and he was declared to be an anti-Semite. That fool, John Mann, I think his name is, I think he's in the House of Lords now, he used to be a Labour MP. He's now some sort of anti-Semitism star. If you remember, he chased Ken Livingston all over London, accusing him of anti-Semitism because Ken said, do you remember that time when the Nazis did a deal with uh, Zionists in Germany? in Nazi Germany in the 30s and said, you know what, let's get a load of you over to Palestine and we'll transfer your money and your belongings over there as well. This actually happened. 
but you're not allowed to speak. You're, you're only allowed to talk about the concentration camps. And of course, we, we should, from time to time, talk about the concentration camps and what happened, because it's a terrible thing. But um, you've got to talk about all of history, don't you? It's 20 minutes past the hour. Um, I'm going to take a tune. I'm not going to take a tune, not yet. The programme this week is brought to you by NutraHealth365.com. If you suffer from joint pain or inflammation, you have probably heard of the benefits of turmeric. But did you know that the active ingredient is curcumin? NutraHealth 365's Joint Health Supplement is specially formulated to reduce the pain caused by joint inflammation, especially during the cold months. Joint Health contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract piperine, to substantially increase its bioavailability, and thereby reaching your inflamed area faster. If the cold weather is making your symptoms worse, and you want relief, Go to NutraHealth365.com and see how our joint health supplement may help reduce inflammation and discomfort. That's NutraHealth365.com with free two-day tract delivery. You're listening to your Richie Allen Show on RichieAllen.co.uk. Yes, you're very welcome back to the programme. Thank you for your messages. Hello to Dave. Why would a pineapple be particularly painful in the back passage? Surely a cactus would be better. I, it's a logistical thing. I, I imagine that driving a pineapple using a sledgehammer would be easier, would be more achievable than using a cactus, Dave. Use your imagination, Dave. You know? Hello to Kay. Thank you, Kay. Hello to Christopher, who's listening to the show In the Winds and Often Rain while tabbing around Cumbran in South Wales. Thank you, Christopher. Hello to Ardell, who says, I noticed Sunak didn't use the word effective when he said the jabs were safe. I'm not sure that's really noteworthy, Ardell. I hear you. I don't think that's it really matters in the grand scheme of things. William says, Nicholas Sturgeon, wait for it, is a sod muncher as well. I don't know what that means, William. He says, it's widely known in Scotland. Got to cover my backside. I don't know what that means. Lewis reckons ITVX... It's Twitter, formerly known as Twitter Disease X. Are we being programmed, asks Lewis. I don't know what that even means. Baird says, Richie, a furnace below, weeping, wailing and gnashing of teeth is what awaits Moran and her friends. I know there are Christians listening to this programme and they take the Bible, they take it seriously, the Old Testament. They believe in the heaven and the hell. They believe in Lucifer. They believe that if you're very, very bad, you're going downstairs when it's all over. I don't know about that. But, um, and maybe even if it is true, maybe, didn't Jesus say, or somebody say, judge not lest ye be judged? It's not for us to determine who's going to hell and who's going to heaven. At least that's what I was taught in religious studies back in the day, St. Paul's Community College in Waterford City. Keep the messages coming in. Um, the website is functioning. It was a bit slow last couple of days, but I seem to be able to get on it now. All right, then. I'll tell you what I'll do. Um, I'll read one or two more comments, then I'll take a tune. We'll get Jana on. Don't forget, later on, Professor Lucian Gill will be on the programme to talk about climate change, but to talk about the loss of moisture and water in the soil, in the earth, and how that might be contributing to warmer temperatures, and how this is maybe known to the scientists who push climate change theory, man-made climate change theory, but they are willfully ignoring it because it doesn't fit in with their narratives. That is something you do not want to miss a little bit later on.
Hi to Pandora. Hi to Diane. Hi to Wayne. Hi to everybody who's listening. Right, time for a tune. When we come back, Jana London will be on the programme. And in the meantime, it's music from Tom Petty. This is Running Down a Dream, the Richie Allen Show. The time now, 24 minutes past the hour of four. It was a beautiful day. Yeah, it's there, 27 minutes past the hour. That's Tom Petty running down a dream on the Richie Allen Show. Wednesday's programme, January 31st, 2024. Yes, two-thirds of the way through winter if you go by the calendar. Others don't, but I do. Listen, let's uh, talk about the referendums referenda, referendums, happening in Ireland on International Women's Day, coming up pretty soon, the 8th of March of this year. The government um, produced this draft wording to propose two changes to the Constitution of Ireland, providing what they say is a wider concept of family and women's role in society. At the time, the Irish Prime Minister, the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, said... The amendments will reinforce the fact that Ireland is a modern, inclusive nation, strives to treat and care for all of its people equally, uh, he said. Now, a number of women, more than a number of women, are concerned about plans to remove um, Articles 41 and 41.2 from the Constitution. These, um, the, 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 those paragraphs which declare that women who that women should be allowed or should have the right to remain at home, whatever the economic circumstances. I'm paraphrasing this now. But that women should not have to go out and work. That if they choose to stay at home, to manage the home, to manage the homestead and to be there to raise their children, that they shouldn't be, because of economic reasons, shouldn't be forced into the workplace. And there are a lot of women who are concerned that this being removed is detrimental to the rights of women in Ireland. There's more to this, of course. Let's welcome back to the programme Jana London. Jana is an advocate for health freedom. She's been on the programme before, children's and family rights, and is the founder of the Natural Women's Council of Ireland. It's always a pleasure. Welcome back, Jana. How are you? I'm great, Richie. How are you? Actually, I'm not too bad now. I'm glad to see the back of January. Always am. It's a bit cliched, bit trite, but um, I hate the winter. So I'm glad to be getting out of it. What say you? Shall we do that? Just do on I'm sure, as we say, Osquelia. Let's talk about the weather for a half an hour and sod the referendums. Let's not. Let's talk about the referendums. Come here and I tell you, why are you so concerned about this? The government says, listen, there's a lot of um, conspiracy theory around this. If women want to stay at home and raise families, um, which is a wonderful thing, a noble thing, an important thing, they needn't worry about losing status or losing access to support. That's not going to happen. They stay. Why are you worried about it? There's many reasons that I have a big concern with the referendum and we are urging everyone to vote no and no on the referendum. There's there's many, many reasons. The most obvious reason is that we should never be deleting the word woman, home and mother from our constitution as a, as a woman, as a mother and having a daughter. Uh, certainly, uh, that would be something I'd be opposed to. But there's also another big concern. I did a recent uh, video on this actually last night on my YouTube channel, the Natural Women's Council, that by deleting Article 41.2.2, women could be losing the actual choice and freedom of whether to stay at home with the benefits, the protections uh, that we have in today's constitution, or the choice to go out to work. Now, I've worked in 
the corporate life as uh, in many different roles for 20 years, but I've been unapologetically, I've been a stay-at-home mom for the last nine years. And I don't want women who are having children in the future to be forced to go into the workplace without their social protections, their financial protections, like the uh, the Maternity Protection Act, the Home Caring Act, uh, being able to earn the credits and, and PRSI when you're home and all of the wonderful things that we have for protections uh, as mothers now, if that article 41.2.2 gets erased, we may not, we may be obliged um, to go back into the labor force. Whereas it states now that it says the state shall therefore endeavor to ensure that mothers shall not be obliged by economic necessity to engage in labor to the neglect of their duties in the home. So this whole propaganda of saying we need to change the Constitution because women are not chained to the kitchen sink and uh, and all of this nonsense. If it's changed, it actually takes away the freedom. Right now, I have a fr- have the freedom to stay at home with my children full time or when I'm ready, go back to the workforce full time. And uh, it's really being twisted by the media and also publicly funded NGOs like the NWCI. We did a big public statement on that. Uh, The director of the NWCI, Orla O'Connor, completely misled the public. Uh, And we've asked her to retract that statement. We've sent an email to the NWCI, to the Irish Times, who wrote the article, and to the executive board of the NWCI. They're all sitting quiet. But it, it's really misleading the public to sway sway votes. They say, don't they, the government, that what, what, what it is that constitutes a family has changed in recent years. Because my image of the traditional family is mum, dad and children. They say this has changed and that you have cohabiting couples now who are not married. That would be heterosexual couples. You have homosexual couples living together who are not married. Um, and and this is this is this is changing, and that what they're doing really is making sure through the changes in the constitution is that it is known that these protections are for everybody, not just for women. That's what they're saying. They're saying that women who, th- despite the, the you know the removal of the clause and the changing of the wording of the constitution, they're saying that stay-at-home mothers um, shouldn't be worried about losing status, that that's not what it's all about. It's about the fact that what constitutes a family has changed. Their words now, Janet, not mine. So what do you say to that? Yeah, it's. I understand that families have changed. And in Ireland, you know, it was all about equality, same-sex marriages, the equality and the vote that we passed on all of that. But this is more than just about equality. This is actually redefining the family and 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 attacking the the actual a direct attack on the nuclear family. So to, for example, they're including durable relationships, which they can't even define what a durable relationship is. But the chair of the electoral commission recently stated that durable commission uh, relationships could be defined as a couple getting a Christmas card. So by redefining the family, it is no longer a sacred institution, but it's open to interpretation so that it, it can include anything the state decides and will be used to advance the LGBTQI and the trans agenda. And also, so in addition to pushing that agenda, the inclusion of durable relationships will lead to an increase of immigrants into Ireland under the family reunification visa scheme. It's currently restricted to a spouse or a child of a refugee. Uh, in 2022, Germany issued 121,000 family reunification visas after extending the qualification criteria. 
Ireland is already at crisis point because of the state's reckless immigration policy or lack thereof policy, which threatens the entire fabric of our society. So if we throw in the durable relationships piece and then we allow it to uh, increase immigrants due to the family reunification visa scheme, our already, uh, our, our already a little island at capacity is going to be in even more of a crisis state. I mean, we have migrants coming in, sleeping on tents in the street. Um, there's 4,000 homeless Irish children in here. Uh, it's not that Ireland people don't want to help others, but at this point, we're neglecting to look after our own. Yeah, it's interesting you bring this up because I've been following. In fact, I reached out to her last year to ask her on this programme, but I didn't manage uh, to reach her. But there's an independent member of parliament, a TD, as we say back home, for Leash Offaly. Her name is Carol Nolan. And it was interesting fantastic to see. Fantastic woman. She fantastic seems to be woman. a fantastic woman. Yeah, very, very, very well spoken and stood up in the Irish Parliament in the Doyle and said that it is unsustainable now, not just the immigration itself, but that Irish people who are asking questions of elected politicians, people who they pay for, the wages they pay for, um, are being, you know, belittled and humiliated and ridiculed name called far right this far right that there seems to be just a little bit of a pushback against this nonsensical labeling of people as far right when they want to talk about these issues do you feel that yourself because obviously you're you're back home you're in ireland what 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 do you think yeah the the media over the last four years has labeled anyone far right that disagrees with any part of the narrative. In the last four years, I've been campaigning against many things such as the the mandatory COVID shots, the lockdowns, the masks, the transgenderism, the mass immigration, the WHO treaty, you name it. And anytime someone stands up against anything, they're labeled as far right. But there was a recent poll done uh, that was published, I believe Gripped Media may have pu- published it, that it was like over 75% of Irish people believe that there's a problem with our mass immigration that, that's coming in and the policy. So now the, the government doesn't really know what to do because they can't really label 75% of people far right, can they? Um, now, I was the topic of a doll conversation because of the campaign that I did against Belong To, and uh, they said they couldn't refer to me on, on the last slander campaign against me and the government as far right. They referred to me as a middle-class, well-spoken Christian fundamentalist. So they're, they're kind of avoid, <laughs> they're kind of avoiding good. Uh, the far right because it's, it's past its shelf life. But I believe that the narrative is collapsing. I believe the tide is turning. Yeah. The damage that's done is so, the destruction is, is so um, massive. It will take a long time to recover. But I do believe that the public now are waking up to the insanity of what's, what's going on. I believe that you know, they're waking up to the fact that the government doesn't report now to the Irish people. They are they are reporting to unelected bodies such as the United Nations, the WHO, the World Economic Forum. Now, I did a town hall in my village uh, almost two years ago, April 2022, and I talked about the housing referendum and the WHO treaty. Now, back then, the WHO treaty, there were people saying that's a conspiracy. There were people saying the World Economic Forum is completely a conspiracy. But now it's no secret. You see Leo Varadkar, our Taoiseach, uh, over there uh, in the World Economic Forum as a young global leader being put through this program. 
it's no secret now that the Irish government has sold out on the Irish people and that, that they're handing us over to or trying to hand us over in a soft coup to the WHO. And uh, this is all being done in the midst of the chaos of pushing the transgenderism and the mass immigration and the riots and the unrest and and the digital ID and the hate speech bill and everything else. It's pure chaos by design to, to distract us from really the fact that they are handing over the reins to, uh, to a, a foreign body. It's good that you know that. I'm not in any way now patronising you, but I wanted to ask you about, is this widely known? I'll come back to that in a minute, but I love that description of you. And when everything is said and done, and when eventually the world returns to a harmonious place where everybody gets on and we can all live our lives, when, when I do eventually meet you, I'll take you around soul for Jana. And that's exactly who I'm going to introduce you. Let me introduce you to Jana, who's a well-spoken middle-class Christian fundamentalist who likes reading the Telegraph. <laughs> oh, don't forget arsonists. They actually, last time I was getting smeared in the doll by the uh, the Hope and Courage Collective, which, funny enough, the director of that group is also the director of the National Women's Council. They linked me to the burning down of immigration centers. Now, geez, I, I hardly even have a match in the house to light my no. candles, but that's that's the level they'll go to. And to is try this to um, is this is this parliamentary parliamentary privilege in action here in the United Kingdom? A member of Parliament cannot libel somebody once it's inside the House of Commons. So they can stand up in the House of Commons and say whatever they like about somebody, and it's deemed to be parliamentary privilege. Nothing can be done about it. Is that the case back home? Because I don't mind telling you, if somebody linked me to an arson attack on a hotel, I'd be very quick to get the solicitors involved. But I'm, I'm guessing maybe that's not something you could do. Yeah, absolutely. They have there's doll privilege, doll but the privilege, group yeah. that went into there is doll privilege, but the group that went into slander me is a publicly funded NGO. They're Hope and Courage Collective, and they're actually funded by Uplift, which is a charity. Now it looks like that what is happening, and my solicitor is is handling this matter. It looks like that Uplift, who has to follow the charity regulations, is using a group like the Hope and Courage Collective to be their front runner to push the agenda. So on the Hope and Courage Collective and Uplift, they're all about pushing the LGBT into schools, uh, sexualization of the children, mass immigration. They're really an arm of the government propaganda. So although Uplift did not slander me, the group that they pay, their front runner, went in to slander me. So that absolutely is something that the charity um, regulator needs to be notified of and will, as well as the individuals uh, from Hope and Courage Collective who who uh, yeah. defamed my, my good names. Might so, very uh, well be actionable, yeah. Here's, here's the $64 million question now. I've, I've been presenting this type of program for many, many, many years and interviewing men and women who were warning about the dystopian times to come. And that's going way back to the mid mid noughties. So I've been doing it a long time. And here's the thing. You said a moment ago, and I think you're right. So you said the culture wars, the transgender stuff, the teaching kids the most outrageous things, the mass immigration, is to keep people fighting amongst themselves while the greater... Um, reset agenda, the, the, the world they want to build is being built. And there's a paradox there maybe, I don't know, because that's a very diffi- difficult thing to convince somebody of. You know, the, the to convince them that Varadkar um, in Ireland, that Micheál Martin, that Rishi Sunak are merely deliverers or message carriers um, on behalf of other people. Because even if it is distracting 
kitchen tactics, these culture wars and stuff, the fact is they have real consequences for people in their communities. That's the paradox, you see. So it's a game they're playing to have us fighting one another on identity politics issues, and that has real consequences for people. But in reality, that's not what they're really about. What they're really about is using that stuff to keep us occupied while they go about and build their technocratic, dystopian, lunatic asylum of the future. That's really difficult to navigate. You get, do you understand? What, I, I know you it, understand what I'm getting it, at. How do you deal with that? It's very difficult to navigate. It, it's like it's like peeling back a thousand layers yeah. of a very complex onion. And I think we need to do some sort of uncovering piece by piece, maybe on some Twitter space calls or podcasts about this. But once you see it and once you can connect the dots, you just can't unsee it. You've probably heard of a man called uh, Peter Sutherland. Yes, yeah, so Peter uh, Peter uh, Sutherland, for listeners who may not know, he was an ex-attorney general of Ireland. Now, funny enough, he was an attorney general at the age of 30. He was one of the most senior people at the World Economic Forum, someone that Klaus Schwab once That's referred right. to as his mentor. Fine Gael he was. Uh, he, what's that? Fine Gael, it's coming back to me now, Fine Gael he was. He yeah. was a Fine Gael politician, yeah. yeah. Yes. And he was a senior Bilderberger. So he was on the steering committee of Bilderberg. I know you've spoken about Bilderberg and he was hugely influential in persuading the Irish government to issue the bank guarantee in 2008, which bankrupted the country in 2010. So Sutherland became a special commissioner for migration for the United Nations and famously at a meeting in the House of Lords in June 2012, uh, said it was vital, he quoted, we must undermine the homogeneity of European countries. Yeah. Now, my friend, um, a good friend of mine, sent me uh, the cover of a book um, called The Globalist, uh, Peter Sutherland, His Life and Legacy, written by John Walsh. And on the back cover, when you dust off the cover of that book, there's a quote on the back from, guess who, Leo Varadkar, that says, a statesman in every sense of the word, an Irishman, a committed European, a proud internationalist. So, this whole globalism started, it's, you know, Ireland has been the test ground and in the belly of the beast um, uh, with this globalism for for decades and decades. It didn't happen overnight. Everybody's looking left and up, looking right and up and down saying, where is all of this coming from? But it's been in the works for a long, long time. Ireland has been the, you know, the laboratory for the empire, which was a phrase coined by a, a TCD uh, professor in history back in going back to the 1550s. But recently we're in where we've been a laboratory for the woke empire and the wef infiltration so penetration of z cabinets as klaus schwab says so you know there's so much there's so many facts there's books written there's newspaper articles about when you connect all the dots and do the research the writing is on the wall but it's something that it's probably too much for someone you know working a full-time job they're a busy parent they're yeah. you know they're living you can't maybe explain on the it, it's too much yeah it's not something you can explain to anybody it is something they must read and understand for themselves and that's where we've got a huge problem so you can talk about it on programs like this yeah maybe someone will hear it for the first time maybe they look into it but it, it is so difficult it's amazing you bringing up Sutherland it's been a while since he got a mention for listeners who don't understand this guy was a Fianna Gael politician he was a barrister he ended up being the first director general of the World Trade Organization he was the chairman of Goldman Sachs I mean to say this guy is an insider it's like saying that um, Cristiano Ronaldo was a footballer. You know, it's a blatantly obvious statement. That's right. Amazing, this Irish guy. And as you said, Ireland then d demonstrably a proving ground for their theories in the last 10, 15, 20 years. 
you know, what's happening in Ireland is what's planned for wider Europe and everywhere else. You're absolutely right, 100%. Here's another bit of trivia for you or your listeners who may be aware of this globalist uh, takeover that Ireland is, is going through is, a letter appeared in the Irish Examiner at the end of December 2019. So this was, keep in mind, two months before the big COVID landed. So um, only a matter of weeks after the WEF-sponsored Remember Event 201. So for anyone who thinks COVID was maybe by accident, um, there was an Event 201, I think it was in New York back in October, a few months before the pandemic, to say, how what, let's do a pandemic simulation. Let's look at how it would all work if there was a pandemic. And then a few months later, we we all got hit. It was really the dress rehearsal for COVID. But a letter appeared in the paper here in the Irish Examiner just before COVID landed, um, congratulating Ireland on its pioneering invention of citizens assemblies. That's another buzzword. So bear in mind, this is a national regional newspaper. So guess who may have written that article, which appeared after a Full 10 years of social transformation in Ireland. Any guess on who wrote to the Irish paper congratulating us? It had to be Bill Gates, right? No? Klaus Schwab. Was it Schwab? Was it? Was it Schwab or Gates? Schwab, yeah. Dirty bastard. Yeah. I like the way you say dirty bastard. It's fantastic in that, in that, <laughs> that hodgepodge of an accent there. Irishman. Yeah. You've still got the American tang, though. I love that. Dirty bastard. Oh, but really? he is, isn't he? I mean, we, we some of the stuff that even came out of the of their annual meeting a couple of weeks ago you know, where they're they're pushing hard again the digital ID cards and yeah, you'll be you'll you'll obviously be following that as well. And mm-hmm. this of course tied yeah. into social credit models that they want to introduce. We're not too far away from this stuff now, are we? Can I ask you this? Uh, you the, so, sorry, Jana, do you wonder b- before I ask you the question, you're listening to Jana London. Jana is the founder of the Natural Women's Council Ireland. We've been talking about a lot this hour. Do if you missed any of it, by the way, this will all be on podcast later on, you'll be able to pick it up and and share it. Um do you think I'm 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 I've never been pessimistic. I'm always a glass half full bloke, always. I do think, though, that we're going to have to accept some elements of this are going to be around for a while and that we might need to or come to terms with living alongside the tyranny and trying to bob and weave as best as we can not to be touched by it or tainted by it. For a while, I think it's going to be difficult. How do do you feel about that? Yeah, I'm the eternal optimist. I always see the glass half full. I believe that goodness will prevail over evil. I'm a woman of faith and a woman of hope. And I like to believe that, you know, if we have enough people rise up that we can stop it. If everybody just stops complying, uh, we can avoid the tyranny. However, some of the damage is done. But what I will say is I remain hopeful because if we look at this year's Davos theme, uh, the theme for Davos this year was rebuilding trust. Now, when you talk about rebuilding, it says something has broken, right? So they know, they know that they've pushed everything too far. Probably the sexualization of children, which is driven by the United Nations and the WHO. Anybody doesn't believe me, look up, Google this document. It's called the WHO Standards of Sexuality. Go halfway through the document. There's the matrix by age, okay? This is what the WHO want to teach children across the world. So if we sign up to the WHO treaty, we're not just giving away our health sovereignty, our food sovereignty, our land, our property, but we're giving away our children's education um, curriculum over to WHO. 
And personally, I don't agree that age nine should be talking about their first sexual experience. That's that's a pedophile playbook, and I have no apology for calling it what it is. So um, back to Davos, the theme is rebuilding trust because they know that people are waking up to who they are and becoming aware of their neo-Malthusian you know, anti-human agenda. I mean, they tried to kill everyone with the shots <laughs> after all a couple years ago. Excess deaths in Ireland is 20% right now. That's after the shots rolled out, not during the pandemic. So from when the pandemic ended 2021 after the shots rolled out we have a 20 percent excess death Stephen donnelly's turning a blind eye anytime they're asked about it they don't turn up at the meetings to talk about it so these people do not have our best interests at hand they're mouth they're malthusians when, and they've identified they've identified misinformation and disinformation as the biggest risks risk factors in the wef so they want to rebuild our trust and they want to attack misinformation and disinformation by censoring what we see and censoring what we hear i mean this is north of north korea stuff when will you crazy conspiracy theorists get it into your head that the covid vaccines are safe jana they're safe and they're effective as well it's ridiculous, isn't it? We had this from the British Prime Minister today in, in Parliament, responding to Andrew Bridgen. How he kept a straight face when he said they're safe. Everybody knows somebody who's been adversely affected or worse by one of these jabs. But yet they're yeah, sticking to it. I had a couple it. fatalities in my own family and about seven jab injuries. I'm the yeah. only one in my family, myself and my two children, who didn't get the jab. And we're the only ones who have remained healthy throughout the entire, quote unquote, pandemic. So um, I just don't know how people are denying uh, this this uh, safe and effective uh, nonsense. They, well, they, politicians, I suppose, the ones who were around and are still around, they really don't have any other option, do they? I mean, it's backs to the wall now. I mean, they can't. The entire house of cards will come tumbling down if one of the leaders of Europe's, um, I suppose, I don't know, what, what do you want to say, even one of the bigger NATO countries, if one of Europe's leaders says, you know what, yeah, I have to accept it, the jabs are, you know, causing widespread harm, well, then it's game over, isn't it? Uh, so they're, they're never going to acknowledge it. At least I don't think no, so. No, and, and I, I do feel a, a sense of, I mean, I would, I'd never, even though people during the COVID pandemic said the, vac the unvaccinated should die, you shouldn't be allowed in restaurants, it's war on the unvaccinated, even Donnelly said, I right now, hand on heart, can say, I wish that I had been wrong. I don't want anybody sick or dead from these shots, even though we were ridiculed and mocked and vilified and excluded. I wish that everybody would just recover and be healthy. I don't have any hate. I have to hold the compassion for these people who really did believe the government and media had their best interests at hearts. But what I will say is, um, you know, my, my friend today and I were talking and he said, uh, the last the last to see the water is the fish. And right now, you know, we're, we're the fish and we're, people are the last to see the water all around them, but it's time they actually look around and start to see it because we can't let this happen again when the next, what, disease X comes out and there's a new PCR test and a new shot. I, I really hope people don't don't fall for that again. Yeah, and maybe they won't. Maybe some will, but maybe in greater numbers. Excuse me, maybe there will be a greater number of dissenters, again, based on the fact that I believe it is widely known in towns and villages and highways and byways, it is known that the jabs are no good. Look, we, we know here that this particular winter, so winter 2023, so last month, um, so December, January, we know, and I know this because th that has been published in the, in the broadsheets here, and we know because I ask, I ask people who work in various GP surgeries in the UK, tell us about the uptake of the COVID booster and the flu jab. And to a man and woman, they say the uptake is deplorable. It has gone way down. 
fourteen uh, percent yeah. apparently. My my local surgery. I know one of the uh, ladies who works there quite well. I know the ladies who work in my local pharmacy. They're lovely ladies. None of them know anything about the radio show or my job at all. But I say to them, and they say no because at the pharmacy they give the flu the the flu shots, and they're saying we've just been sending back boxes and boxes of these jabs. Because people that are not having my, them. That makes my heart sing. And you actually, Richie, I yeah. have to say, you you inspired me to do a, a flu vaccine campaign. You had a nurse on, I think, the show a while back. And um, the girls, uh, uh, the volunteers from Health Freedom Ireland had done a load of flu data uh, analysis. And I asked them to send it over. And I created a little five-minute um, presentation showing all the data on the flu vaccine. Because in Ireland, they did the flu mist for all of the senior infants in school. So these are like six-year-olds. That entire class across every school in Ireland, as part of the HSE campaign, they got the flu mist. And everybody was going to get the flu mist to, of course, keep granny safe. But the data showed that from when the flu jab, flu mist rolled out to children, the deaths across all ages increased 15-fold. So the flu mist is a live vaccine. It sheds. It actually says on the patient information leaflet, it sheds. They also timed it perfectly to do the flu mist in schools in Ireland right before Christmas when the kids break for Christmas and go visit granny. And yeah. guess what? The flu went up. So they it's absolutely criminal. But parents blindly trust and, and had their kids all misted. I, I kept my kids home that day and took them to the museum. But um, it's just it's crazy. But I, I, it makes my heart sing to hear that those those flu jabs uh, got sent back. I think the covid, if anything positive came from it, besides all the coffee trucks, parked out at every every park and mountain and yeah. um, besides all the coffee vans the other good thing that came out of it is people woke up to the pharmaceuticals and the health freedom ireland that you can everyone can visit healthfreedomireland.com there's a booklet they just put out on years and years of data on all the different childhood vaccines and it's a real eye-opener the book is 20 euros it'd be the best present for a new parent uh i wasn't awake until my kids were one year one year old and they did get their zero to one injections but had i known then what i know now and had i done my research i would have made a different decision and i think more people are waking up to that no doubt about it. I'll share a very quick, funny story with you. It goes back about four years. So long before the COVID thing, I was preparing my monologue, as I do every day for the programme. And I was watching Sky News. And it was around about um, early November or maybe even late October. And the presenter is a woman called Kay Burley. So early in the morning, she brings a young doctor, a young female doctor in. And Burley is very serious, Johnny, you know, she's very serious, she's a great, great actress, Burley. So she says, now, flu season, flu is coming, they're expecting flu to be, this is like 2018, I think, 2019, they're expecting flu to be prevalent, to be very serious this winter, got to have your flu job. So let me introduce Dr. Fiona Kelly, her name wasn't Fiona Kelly, I can't remember what her name was. So anyway, Fiona stands there and she says, um, right, Kay, yeah, nice to be here, well, tell us about the flu job. And then Fiona Kelly did um, what our doctors would have done years ago. She told the truth. She said, well, um, yeah, well, you know, the, the flu jab, um, we, we take a punt, we take a guess really at which strain of flu is going to be the most widespread strain. And then we, 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 we picked the, the vaccine, the, the strain, months before uh, the winter. Look, some older people who might be very vulnerable to the flu, they might want to take it. But um, that's about the size of it, she said, right? And I was laughing, myself silly in my living room watching this. So Burley was aghast. Kay Burley was aghast. But she didn't say anything. She said, thanks for coming in, doctor. Um, bye for now. So off went the doctor. Now, if you know TV, and I think you do, do know a little bit, a little bit about TV, what ordinarily happens is... Burley's 
on for four hours. So in the next hour, they run a quick replay of our conversation with the doctor, right? So they say, it's flu season. Earlier, I spoke to Dr. Fiona Kelly. They didn't. You know what they did, John? It was hilarious. They rushed another doctor into the studio for the next hour of the programme. And she did the same routine again, Jana. And she said, flu season. We've all got to have the jab. It's going to be a very serious season. I've got Dr. Michael <laughs> Murphy in the studio. Michael, who should get the flu jab? Well, Jana, what do you think he said? Everybody, Kay. Everybody. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young. You've got to get the flu jab. And I got great mileage out of it. And if ever you needed proof <laughs> that the broadcasters... Um, the, the major broadcasters in the UK, in Ireland, around the world are paid enormous amounts of money by big pharma companies. There was your proof. You know, nice doctor comes on and says, ah, don't worry too much about it. You know, it's not the end of the world if you don't have the flu jab. Let's get her out. Let's never have her back again. Let's bring another doctor in to tell us what we want to hear, which is everybody should have the jab. That's the sort of shenanigans they've been pulling for years, you know for years. Yeah, it's insane. And I never really looked at the ingredients of all the injections. Again, I was one of those new moms, blindly trusted the doctors who told me if I don't give my kids the jabs, they're going to have a fatal death or lose their limbs or vision or whatever. And I just really trusted that GP. But when you look at the ingredients, it's just insane. The aluminium, mercury, some are made, you know, fetal cells. I mean, it's unbelievable the stuff that people are injecting into children. And if you look at on Health Freedom Ireland website, they have all the data. It's amazing. If you look at some of the data with, now not saying that correlation is causation or whatever, but if you look at the amount of injections that have increased over the last, let's say, 30 years with the rates of autism, there's a very uh, direct line going up. So, for example, when I was in school back in the 70s, um, in the States, 70s and 80s, we didn't have any special needs assistance in school. We didn't have anyone who was, you know, you could tell was was on the spectrum, et cetera. Now, I've, I know a lot of teachers in my network. Every class has three or four people on the spectrum. Now, people will say... Um, Better detection. It's because it's, 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 it's more detective. It's yeah. more detection now and this and that. Maybe to some extent, but not to the rates that we've seen on the on the data. And, you know, you can visibly like... And we had one kid in my school who needed a lot of special support. He didn't really go to class. He sort of ran around the halls and couldn't, couldn't focus and such. And, you know, I don't know if it's all down to vaccines or if it's what they're adding into the food, adding into the water. The diet has become more um, processed, lots of sugar, lots of artificial things. Whereas back in the 70s, everybody 80s, we grew our own food. We raised our own cows. We ate, we ate everything. Everything only had one ingredient. You pick up a packet of something from the shop and there's 30 ingredients and most of the words I can't pronounce. So, you know, I grow my own food for my, for my own two children and um, tap wood. We haven't had any illness in the last several years other than the odd cold and such. I do believe that food and water and injecting all those chemicals can't be, can't be healthy. Brilliant to have you back on today. Thanks for that. We'll um, we'll leave it there for now. But by the way, the video you made about the referendum, where should people go on YouTube to find that? Yeah, I have a YouTube channel which has a bit of everything, everything from the from the flu mist to the referendum to the uh, transgenderism being pushed in kids to the World Economic Forum. It's a mixed bag, so you can uh, cho choose which ones you want to watch. It's on the uh, Natural Women's Council on YouTube, and that has uh, all the different podcasts that we, we do. We have a couple good uh, guests coming up very soon as well. And then we are on Telegram, Natural Women's Council, and then Twitter. I just use my own account and post a little bit of everything. It's uh, JK. 
K-L-U-N-D-E-N. So uh, give us a follow on YouTube and uh, Telegram and Twitter. You can see what's happening over here on this beautiful little island that we're trying so hard to to save from the, the mass destruction that's unfolding uh, in front of our eyes. Always good to have you on, Jana. Thanks for your time today. I look forward to next Great. time. Thanks, Richie. You're very Thank welcome. You. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Mind yourself. Jana London, live on the Richie Allen Show, Wednesday's edition, the founder of the Natural Women's Council of Ireland. Good to have her on. Lots to come. Lots to come. Professor Lucy and Gill joining me shortly to talk about climate change. Don't miss that. I'll be reading your messages in a moment. Will I read them now? Will I read them now? Shall I go on? Hi to Diane. Richie, we've seen nothing so far with the excess deaths. Deagle didn't make those predictions for shits and giggles, you know, says Diane. Jonathan says, don't forget, in 2014, Peter, so- Peter Sutherland attended Bilderberg in Copenhagen with Simon Coveney, the current Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment in Ireland. A group called We Are Change tracked them down and asked them a few questions. That's Luke Rudkowski's gang, Jonathan, I do believe. Yes, good, good, good um, spot there, Jonathan. And Sutherland, of course, if memory serves, I'll look it up just to be on the safe side, but Sutherland is dead now, isn't he? Didn't he die pre-COVID, I believe? But talk about Insider. Yeah, the first I heard of Sutherland was um, was during my days working as a producer of radio in Waterford in Ireland. But then later on, after I'd met David Eichen, I'd been spending quite a lot of time with David, David said to me, it's amazing, he, he said to me, how many Irish guys are or have been in central and key positions in the roundtable groups and the World Bank and the WTO and the UN. And he was absolutely right, really, when you look at it for such a small country. Population is now over 5 million and growing in Ireland, of course. But uh, when I was a younger man, population about three and a half, no, 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 about four just over 4 million, I think. Yeah, but yeah, quite right for such a small nation in terms of in terms of the land mass and also in terms of the population. We've had more than our fair share of insiders as Ireland. That's a bit depressing, really, when you're proud of your country, as, as I so desperately want to be, but can't always be anyway. If you suffer from joint pain or inflammation, you have probably heard of the benefits of turmeric. But did you know that the active ingredient is curcumin? NutraHealth 365's Joint Health Supplement is specially formulated to reduce the pain caused by joint inflammation, especially during the cold months. Joint Health contains a substantial amount of the active ingredient curcumin, as well as a black pepper extract piperine, to substantially increase its bioavailability, and thereby reaching your inflamed area faster. If the cold weather is making your symptoms worse, and you want relief, Go to NutraHealth365.com and see how our joint health supplement may help reduce inflammation and discomfort. That's NutraHealth365.com with free two-day track delivery. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support The Richie Allen Show now at RichieAllen.co.uk It is always good to be with you. The Richie Allen Show, live from Salford, Monday to Thursday, 4 o'clock UK time. Monday to Thursday, just in case... In the unlikely event that you're new to the show, it's been around a while. Uh, There is a podcast, a daily podcast, which is usually available to download 
before 7.30 a.m. Again, that would be Greenwich Mean Time. That would be UK time. It's called The Papers. It's very simple. It's just me picking out a few of the more interesting stories from the British daily newspapers and, well, the English daily newspapers, really, and also looking inside as well. The Papers podcast is available wherever you happen to download your podcasts from. This live radio show, which you're listening to right now, is, of course, immediately uploaded to podcast upon completion. So as soon as I finish, it'll be on podcast around about 6.25, 6.30. After I edit it down, some man for one man, ha, huh, ha, huh? I'll, I'll edit it down and then upload it to podomatic.com. It goes out then to Spotify, to iTunes, to Podbean and all of those other channels. Six minutes past the hour. number of people have asked me on, on the uh, app, have asked me to make some comment on the fact that Tucker Carlson interviewed Russell Brand. I have absolutely no interest in Russell Brand. I have less interest in Tucker Carlson. And if you don't understand that, or if you want to know why, I can only refer you to previous programmes. It is my belief that these guys are insiders, whether they're consciously insiders or not, they are. You will have heard nothing new about the agendas that we've been talking about for years and years on programmes like this. Nothing new in any conversation between Tucker Carlson and Russell Brand. And I know a lot about Russell Brand because Brand sniffed around the people's voice back in 2013. Brand had previously interviewed David Icke on a show that Brand had presented, I think, for Channel 4 or Channel 5. Something that Brand, I believe, omitted when he spoke with Tucker Carlson recently. I believe that Tucker Carlson is a disgrace. I asked a good friend of mine, did you watch Brandon Carlson? And my friend said, yeah. Did Carlson ask him about the specific allegations made about him, particularly the ones made about him when he was in Los Angeles working for the BBC. And of course, Tucker Carlson didn't, because he isn't a journalist, he's not a reporter, he's nothing much, really. I'd love to interview Russell Brand. Couldn't end well for Russell, though, the interview. Not because I'm any sort of tough guy, but I'd have some real questions for him about who he is and what he's done and where he's been. Not like he's Buddy Tucker Carlson. So no, I don't watch that shite because there isn't anything I can learn from it. Nothing. You know, I think it is preposterous. Any claim that Brand is being targeted because Brand himself represents a threat to the agendas is preposterous. It is ludicrous. I don't mind you loving Russell Brand and loving his humour and his films. By all means, you love what you want. But don't tell me that Brand was specifically targeted with these sex allegations because of what he's doing on, on, on YouTube. Come on. You know better than that. And I suppose I'm not speaking to you directly because you do know better than that. You're not stupid. But a lot of people are so desperate to hear their views expressed by celebrities. They're so desperate for it. They're so, they yearn for it. The more famous a person is who expresses the same views that are held by the beholder, they love it. They can't get enough of it. And then when you say, well, hang on a second, who is this guy really? Well, they melt down. They don't know what to do really, you know. Anyway. Anyway. Don't you change that song? I'll change it from time to time. I won't say it again. Jesus wept. Here's more music. Back in a moment with my next guest. You do not want to miss Professor Lucian Gill, the Richie Allen show then. 
Yeah, that's a music from Tom Cochran and Life is a Highway on the Richie Allen Show. That was an abrupt court deal, forgive me. It's uh, coming up for 12 minutes past uh, the hour of five o'clock. I want to have as much time as I can with my next guest this hour. Uh, a number of listeners reached out to me to say, Richie, you've got to interview and speak with Professor Lucian Gill because he's made a very interesting film, Richie. He's also um, released, he's published a very interesting book about climate change. Now, Lucian Gill is an incredibly qualified man. Amongst his many achievements, he's worked in Washington in nuclear cleanup. He's worked for the Chinese government, would you believe it? Um, he completed his education in chemistry, physics and nuclear technologies and science in his 20s. He got his doctorate. He's worked in water, soil and science, dealing with pollution in the oil and chemical industries. He's been a visiting, he has been a visiting professor in England and Malaysia. Look, I could be giving you his resume all day long. Why is he interesting? Well, the very beginning, when he heard about man-made climate change, he watched with interest how panic spread through the media, through the news and through governments, that global temperature rises would be catastrophic for humanity. He was sceptical and he began to look at this for himself at a global warming caused by CO2. And he noticed that there was a relationship between temperatures at ground and air level and the water concentration and the soil, the water content of the soil. He says he's watched the gradual transfer of water from the land to the oceans. He says the dry areas are ever increasing and the temperatures are going up because of this. And industrial Agriculture is not only stripping water from land, it is leading to a rise in CO2. I'm delighted to welcome to the programme none other than Professor Lucian Gill. Lucian, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you on. How are you? Oh, that's fine, thanks. I think that finishes it and we can all go home now. <laughs> it, it, I know sometimes when I have academics like yourself to, who have done quite a bit I sometimes feel like that I think the introduction is going to go on longer than the actual conversation but um, it's nice, it must be nice for you to know that people who've read your book and watched your film have been reaching out to the show in great numbers to say Richie give this gentleman a hearing because I understand Lucian that you've been on local and commercial radio recently to talk about your findings and from what I understand they couldn't wait to get you off quick enough do you want to talk about that for a minute <laughs> yes it comes a bit of a surprise because I I mean I'm 77 so I, in my 20s I believe very much in science and the educational system, it wasn't privatized then, it, it was much more idealistic. And all the scientists and the professionals were working their best for humanity, if you want to put it that way. And people were always interested in arguing and going on <laughs> TV or wherever and speaking. But I was invited to speak on a show and uh, they, they started off and, and they said, now, you, most scientists will say that global warming, it's fixed. You know, we know all, all about it. You disagree with that. So would you sit and tell us why? And I started talking and within a few minutes, there was a noise in the corridor as people ran down. The door opened and I said, that's it. Um, <laughs> shut down or you'll lose your life. 
Get him off. So, get him off the air at the speed of light. Isn't that tragic, though? So they were nice enough to say, OK, Professor Gill, you descend from the scientific consensus and you're going to tell me in a moment. And I, I think you might be right that the scientific consensus is not actually legitimate because they, they don't um, agree as much as we're told to believe it. So they invite you on to say, tell us why. And within minutes, station managers are saying, get him off the air. That's the kind of thing that goes on in communist China or North Korea, Lucian. You'd be amazed. I think it goes on here even worse. You just don't see it because you don't expect it. Um, but it, it was as quick as that. Uh, they are monitored all the time, everything that people are saying. And you step out of the line and that's it. Um, and it works the other way as well. The scientists and the academics who claim to be this 100% are basically those who are getting the grant money to do the research. And of course, the research has to agree with what the government wants. So the people who disagree, they don't get the money. And if you're in academia and your bread and butter depends on agreement, then you agree. You'll agree. Now, I want to use this time as wisely as we can. And can I just say this from the outset? Not because I like what you're saying or because, you know, I've read a lot about this myself and because I have a lot of sympathy with your arguments, even though I'm not a scientist. Um, So I'm not saying this for that reason. Look, it's obvious that I'm very interested in what you have to say, but we might end up um, going into a part two on this. So if at some stage around about quarter to six o'clock, we we shouldn't panic if you think I've lots more to say. We can always pick it up again next week or whenever it's convenient for you because there is a lot to get through. So I want to start, I want you to treat me like I'm an idiot, like not not like I'm an idiot, but like I'm seven years old, right? Um, And I think one, one of the things that you do in your video, it's brilliant. You do make it understandable for people. Folks, I reckon you should go to YouTube after the programme. I'll put a link on. Catchments and Carbon is a video that went up a couple of months ago. The channel is Water21, Catchments and Carbon. And you'll see Lucy in there um, using his pen name, which is very clever, um, Lois Caborn. We'll talk about that later on as well. And he explains his theory. Um, so so, so, so tell, tell us then, uh, Lucian, your theory. Tell us about the soil, how you believe the soil is losing moisture and water, why this is happening, and how this is leading to some warming. Talk to us from the from the very outset, then the beginning. Okay. Well, um, I was in. I worked in India for quite a long time. I was a government scientist for uh, what's called the Indo-British Partnership. So I was regularly in there looking at water and pollution and soil and things, and giving advice. And um, what I did was. In the 50th anniversary of Indian independence, there was a special conference. So I, because I've been dealing with water, I thought, well, let's have a look at the state of the world in terms of water. And what I put up was that at that point, 17 countries in the Middle East, Israel, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, as well as South Africa, Pakistan, and so on, will face absolute water scarcity by 2025. And 24 other countries in sub-Saharan Africa will face economic water scarcity, which means they've run out of the water completely. And that globally, 70% of water taken from the rivers or aquifers is used to irrigate and then dumped in the ocean. Now, that was Delhi, 1997. 
and it has not got any better since. So I have that in my mind when people were talking about CO2 being responsible for the increase in temperatures and the increase in warming and how big a disaster it would be. And I began to feel a bit uneasy about that because I'd worked in infrared myself. Right? I did a research doctorate. And so what they were saying about infrared didn't fit in with my experience in that time. So I thought there was something fishy. Um, and I carried on looking at that. And I worked a lot in Sudan. In the south, it's quite tropical. In the north, you have the desert. So you can't help but notice that something causes a difference, and the difference is water content. So I began really to look more and more at the function of water. And of course, if you are driving around in your car and you have a stone punctures your radiator and the water begins to drop out, then your car starts to overheat, behave erratically, and if you keep going, it will come to a grinding halt and overheat. And so the reason for that is quite simple. Water is the heat transfer fluid for the radiator, for the car, but it's also the heat transfer fluid for the planet. And if you're in a desert and there is no water, when the temperature goes up on the morning, it goes up rapidly and it stays high, but then it drops to almost freezing at night. If you're in a place further south where there is uh, water held in a green soil, the temperature is moderated. And in England, of course, the temperature is well moderated. So I began to look skeptically at what was being said. And the first thing I noticed was that we have a lot of um, impact on fossil fuels. We are told fossil fuels is the guilty party. And they produced a graph which is a fairly famous graph, the hockey stick graph, I think, which showed industrial revolution and CO2 going up. And they put an arrow where the industrial revolution occurred around about 1750. And it began to rocket upwards from then onwards. And they said, here you are, this proves that the emissions from the industrial revolution, the CO2, have caused the temperatures to go up. Unfortunately, that's a correlation. And they admitted that. And people, people may not realize that a correlation is not proof. It just happens to correlate. And the reason you use a correlation is that you have to investigate to find out why there is a correlation. So I looked at that and was told that we were generating something like 10 billion tons per annum of CO2 from fossil fuels from the cars, the diesel engines, power uh, stations using oil and so on, and coal. And therefore, we had to stop this. Otherwise, as the graph showed, it would rocket skywards and overheat. So I started to make troubles quite simply by asking, okay, 10 billion tons of fossil fuels, uh, 7 billion tons for forest fires, more fires, 8 billion tons. Forest fires, 10 billion tons. Cattle, 9 billion tons. Remove woodland, 
Tenbunton. You get the idea of where I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so overall, you're looking at only about 12 or 13 percent of the deadly CO2 emission being caused by fossil fuel, and nobody's saying anything about all the rest of it, which is about 88, nearly 90 percent. So I thought that was a bit strange in itself. And then I thought, well, why on earth should agriculture be producing so much carbon dioxide? What's the mechanism? And when I looked at that, I found that the famous graph that they had put up actually came from agriculture. It was nothing to do with the Industrial Revolution. It was the graph of the spread of agriculture throughout the world, right down into Africa, to India, to Asia, and so on. And the graph of temperature rise and CO2 emission correlates far better with that one than it does with hydrocarbons from industrial emissions. Now, Luthien, do you did you mean the introduction of industrialised um, heavy machinery agriculture or, or just agriculture generally? Because agriculture of one form or another has been around since Moses was in short trousers. So, so which is it? Agriculture in general, but it began to accelerate once you brought the machinery and the fertiliser in. Because at the time, people were trying desperately to feed the world, which is very good. Yeah. But that really caused a big jump. And so they're looking at something that says there is a link between agriculture and there's a link between even more emissions of CO2 from agriculture and the temperature rise than there is with hydrocarbons. So again, something going on. Now, farmers, now farmers listening to this might be hopping mad, but we, we might need to tell them, calm down a bit now. You've got to listen to the rest of this, right? Because you're not, <laughs> you're not blaming farmers um, for global warming, because this is important. And we, we spoke off air today about the, the protests in France and Germany and everywhere else. This, this is absolutely fascinating. Professor Lucien Gill is, is live on the programme. Now we're getting to the crux of his theory. Um, fascinating what you said there about this hockey graph and how you believe and how many p- people like you believe that the, uh, the, the the rise was a correlation, not a cause, you know, in industrial activity and the rise in um, CO2 output was a correlation and that you began to look at agriculture and that's where you felt the CO2 was coming from. Just want to, to to reiterate this for our listeners, and it was agriculture in general, not yet the industrialised agriculture, which we will be talking about in a moment. So, just wanted to clarify that. We, yeah, sure. I mean, with agriculture in general, uh, I mean, soil breathes. Yeah, that may come as a shock to some people, but in the same way that humans breathe, taking oxygen, give out CO two, and so on, agriculture breathes. The soil breathes, and the reason for that is that the bacteria in the soil breathe. Some of them need oxygen, some of them don't need oxygen, some of them trap carbon from the air, CO2, and turn it into organic carbon in the soil. In fact, our soil has been created by the organisms, the algae, the bacteria, and so on. And the soil has been created over millions of years from the soil processes which breathes. And you can measure what they call soil respiration quite easily. You know, it's it's a common practice. 
So what had happened that had accelerated CO2 emissions? And why? Because CO2 is, is turning everything back to carbon. So when I began to look at that, um, I found that when you spread, in order to do modern agriculture, you have to get rid of the weeds for the start. So you spray with pesticides, herbicides, all the rest of it. And what was happening was that you spray with your pesticides, your herbicides, and it's wonderful. It kills the weeds and everything is nicely grows all at the same size and so on. Unfortunately, it kills all the bacteria. Now, one of the bacteria that it kills, I, I worked using the soil bacteria to clean up pollution. So I was into the bacterial side of things. One of the group generates a glue, a polysaccharide glue, which is very good. And it glues the top of the soil. You can't actually see this thing without your microscope. It glues the top of the soil together so that when it rains, the soil is not destroyed by the impact of rain. It stays where it is, allows the water to go through, and your plants can get the water and carry on growing happily. And down in the soil, the bacteria are bringing nitrogen in from the air and CO2 and so on, and there's oxygen coming out. When you destroy the polysaccharide glues, when it rains, the soil breaks down. And it breaks into finer and finer particles. And if you get a flood, it washes the soil down to the river. And we, in this country at the moment, are losing 60 tonnes per hectare per annum of soil from agricultural areas. And it's going into the river. It fills the river basin up, so the river cannot carry water anymore as much as it could. So you're generating floods, but you're not dredging. But essentially, you're, drawing, you're destroying the bacterial life of the soil with the new pesticides and herbicides. And if you're using wormers, for example, for cattle, those wormers go straight through into the soil and they kill all the, uh, the other organisms in soil, the worm, let's call them the worms, okay? And it goes into the water course and it kills the aquatic life. So our aquatic life is being hit by bacterial destruction, the worms being destroyed, the aquatic life being destroyed from a buildup of the herbicides and pesticides and worming agents. Yeah? Now, now, Lucian, you, you must not be the only person who knows this. By the way, this is news to me, right? Because I've, I've interviewed men and women over the years who talked about the lack of dredging. You know, European Union directives and we must um, protect some exotic fly that lives near the riverbed or near, near the river bank. We don't dredge, we get flooding. I knew none of this until I began researching you. So a naturally occurring glue that holds soil mm. together um, yeah. is destroyed by industrialised farming. Um, if it wasn't, if the naturally occurring glue is there, the rain passes through the soil, the soil is undamaged, and the soil produces crops. But with the herbicides, the glue is destroyed, the soil washes away 60 tonnes per annum per hectare is washed away into river basins and into you know, reservoirs maybe, but rivers. That leads to a build-up, you said, meaning that rivers eventually break their banks, 
the news media goes into overdrive Lucian. It talks in apocalyptic language and it tells us this is down to man-made climate change. That's what they say. Absolutely. That's brilliant, yeah. I'll get you to write my next book, I think. <laughs> but but no, I'm... That is, that, is, that is what's happening. And is it widely that known, is... Lucian? Would, would the proponents of climate change, would they have this information? Um... I don't think they look for it, to be honest, because I'm being quite old. I've been involved in research and all the rest of it. And, and I've seen a situation like the climate change scenario before to do with water treatment systems. Very good systems that can clean water and sewage and all sorts of things. But they're fairly cheap and they can be built by farmers and they can be built by communities with some help from specialists designers yeah now they came in many years ago but and suddenly you had a, a mass of uh, the academia funded by industry group who formed very quickly an alternate to these systems that was a counterfeit it couldn't clean pesticides couldn't clean herbicides they did very little but they were ugly and green so it was greenwash what happened was that every academic area was saturated by government, EU and so on, with grants. But of course, you could only write in favour of the fake technology. Right. And the real technology was taken away and buried. <laughs> and the same has happened with uh, climate change. You only get to do what you're told to do. So it, it's the same process. Governments control information through academia, through give, and they control academia by giving them the grants. So, yeah, it doesn't really get out there. So no. it doesn't get out there. Can, well, I, can, I, can I interject? I interviewed Professor Ian Plymer a couple of times over the years. Mm. And um, some of what Ian believes may very well um, go along with, uh, correlate with your theories. Maybe some of it differs. But he often talks about how CO2 is sequestered and how the planet has always done it naturally and Absolutely. how the planet has degassed itself. So what you're yeah. saying is then that through the pesticide usage right across the world, it'll be in every country, the bacteria that yeah. held on to the carbon is gone. So now the CO2 is being released out of the soil, which is being washed away and rendered useless. And is it, yeah. is it that CO2 then that they're measuring and telling us, oh, there's been a huge increase in CO2. Is that, have I gotten that wrong or is, is that the right well, takeaway? It, it, in part, no. What they're seeing is that the, once the soil collapses, uh, I mean, every farmer knows, you get a bit of peat and you put it into your sand and you put it in your pot and your pot will hold water, yeah? And your plants will grow. Yeah. You don't have to wash it often. What, but it's a bacterial process. The, the whole thing about plants, the plant roots are covered with bacteria that are giving it the food, they're changing everything, they're bringing CO2 in and so on. Once you um, start to get rid of that, the oxygen comes, the bacteria for the plants are killed as well. It doesn't need it anymore because you're giving it lots of fertilizer. It doesn't have to do the nitrate, what we call the nitrate cycle. Uh, you're breastfeeding it, so it doesn't need to stand on its own feet. The carbon material, the peat, starts to oxidize. 
So the carbon material in the soil is oxidised. That's where the net 8 billion is coming from. Right. And at the end of that process, your plants are standing in sand because all the carbon has gone. Now, at that point, it will keep going because you give it all the pesticides, the herbicides, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, the potassium, yeah? So you're growing a plant totally artificially. The soil is just there to hold it upright. Unfortunately, you only get now about two days' water supply in the soil so you can get water shortages, yeah? Because it's all out of balance. When you used to have an organic soil with peat in there, you maybe need, need water for maybe 10, 12 days. So the whole cycle of the soil has been destroyed. There is a bigger impact, which I can just get on, move on to now, in that if you look at the energy coming down from sunshine, then in a green field, green crops, properly organic, then you may get about 50% of that sunlight going to the plant to drive photosynthesis. And 50% is keeping the soil warm, okay? Yeah. As you, as you destroy the plant, the bacteria in the plant, and as you release the water and turn to sand, the water drains away and the soil is not, um, you, which used the water to absorb the heat and evaporate to give you rain, is not doing that anymore. So you have no heat transfer mechanism left in your soil. And so the farmers had, in the 50s and 60s, equations called the Penman equations, and they could calculate from the amount of sunshine, the amount of moisture and rain, how much extra water they might need for a crop. And what those equations show is that as your soil carbon goes down, as your water content in your soil goes down, the soil temperatures go up because the water is not taking the heat from the soil and carrying it up into the clouds. So the correlation that says agriculture is losing carbon by oxidation is then causing the global warming because the water is draining from the soil. So your heat transfer mechanism is gone, your radiator has been punctured, and you're into a very bad scenario. I looked at, um, a short time ago, in Europe, and Europe is on the verge of catastrophe. The groundwater reserves have dried up and there is major drought, the worst in 500 years, right across Europe. The reason being, they're losing their soil moisture and oh, by the way, they've lost all their soil carbon. Why have they lost all the soil carbon? Because it's been destroyed by spraying by spraying pesticides right across the continent, by exactly. by biotech companies like Monsanto and others, this is yeah. some theory. So you do get some warming as a result of this, and they jump on that warming and say that it's down to human activity. When when yeah. when you believe it isn't, it's down to the destruction. And you know, I'm I'm genuinely getting shivers down my spine now. 
because I interviewed a Monsanto apologist a few years ago. And, oh, yes. and I didn't know any of this stuff, right? But I did my homework. And Monsanto was marketing a seed that would work in soil with um, where the soil was suffering from abiotic stress. And yep. what you're describing is abiotic stress. And I didn't know too much at the time, but I did know enough because I'd interviewed Vandana Shiva and others. And I said to the Monsanto apologist, but I said, isn't it um, entirely plausible that you're actually responsible for the abiotic stress in the soil that you're now producing a seed for because of your pesticides and stuff? So it kind of comes full circle. And now I'm speaking to Professor Lucy and Gill. And you said to me earlier, back in 1997, you became aware of this, that in some Middle Eastern countries, Lucian, you, rec you recognised that 70% of the groundwater, of the water, was not remaining in the soil, it was going back to the sea. Yes, exactly. And that now, was catastrophic for drought, that was causing drought. Yeah, now just to make that even more scary... Well, it's scary enough now, to be honest, but go on. Yeah, the, well, that's why, you know, that's why I... I I love scientists to come and argue, but I don't want to be shut down because we literally are talking about our future. So, in the European drought, the worst in 500 years, with the lowest soil carbon now, because they're using the pesticides, herbicides all over Europe, 20 billion tons of water are discharged every year from Europe into the sea. So over 50 years, this equates to 1,000 billion tons. And this accounts for 90% of the sea level rise. And the water cycle on land is now totally disrupted. So when it rains, the soil can't hold the water. It goes straight to the river, which is full of the soil residues. It floods everywhere. You build more houses and you close off the aquifer so the soil can't get to the aquifer. And all of that that's happening, every time you open up some new agricultural land, you're carrying out the same process, closing the aquifer, destroying the soil. And the temperatures are going up. They're not going up because of petrol and diesel. That is totally irrelevant. You could burn as much as you wanted. Uh, and it would make absolutely no difference. What is doing the damage is the industrialised agricultural uh, soil system. Now, your, is, your credentials um, are genuine and real, because I looked them up, right? So oh, e everything, you, <laughs> e everything you, you claimed to do, you have done. I mean, you've done it all, really. But I've still got to ask you, it sounds like you've got a lot of sympathy for the old, you know, mining, the old coal and oil. So I've got to ask you... Is what you're telling me the result of your genuine bona fide academic interest as a researcher, or do you have any connections at all to the fossil fuel industries? Because I know you'll be accused of it. No, good question. And uh, no, by all means, ask. I'm totally transparent. Um, when I left school, uh, 15 years old, 762 years ago or whatever, I went to what was called the gas industry, the gas works. And so I spent seven years, wonderful years, on the huge gas works, learning my chemistry engineering, using coal uh, to generate the old town gas, if you remember that. Yeah. Now, 
my brother was actually down the mine sending me the coal when I was doing the analysis and helping to run the gas works. Yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for coal. Uh, it's a dirty, you get dirty exhaust from coal, but that can be cleaned up and you can use coal. So I do have a lot of sympathy. I have also, I also did um, some research on the North Sea oil fields, um, and I have worked for uh, Shell, BP. Um, Petronas Malaysia, China National Oil. What I was doing for them was cleaning up the pollution from the oil fields using soil and soil bacteria to destroy the pollution. The biggest um, project of that size that I did was in what is now North Sudan, where I was working to do natural systems using bacteria, plants, and soil from the local areas. And we were cleaning up. We had a total potential of 500,000 tons per day of clean water from the dirty oil in the oil industry. Jesus. So, yes, I've got, you know, connections. But, um, no. And tell me this, now. tell me this, Lucy, and if we accept... And I do really, you know, I, I don't believe that anthropogenic warming theory holds any water, no pun intended. I just don't believe it. And it's not because I want to. Like, I'm an old lefty. You won't know anything about me, but I'm an old trade unionist. And we were sold climate change before anybody else. So I would have banged the drum for climate change being real in the 90s. I would have believed it. I don't believe it now. And like yourself, no. like yourself, it's not because I'm being paid. Like yourself, it's because what I really believe. But can I ask you a very quick 30-second question before I read you some comments? I told you our listeners would be reaching out to us in great numbers. They are. Loads of interesting comments. Um, so I agree with you. Um, and a lot of our listeners will. But oil and gas, oil and coal particularly, they're dirty, aren't they? I mean, surely we should yep. be advanced enough now to be moving away from fossil fuels in any case. What would you say to that? Um, well, if you can, if you can find me a fuel that gives as much energy as oil and gas, then fine, as, as a commercial competitor. But you can't, because um, if you look at wind turbines, energy is a complete separate section, but you will never, ever achieve using wind turbines anything like the energy density that you need. That is just cloud cuckoo land. And the reason that we're getting so much of it is because the people are being taxed. They call it, it's now a subsidy, of course. Here, have 20 billion to the Germans to build turbines for us, um, get the Chinese to build these solar panels. They themselves will not produce the energy we need. Nuclear, we could do. Uh, and but that gives off a dirty spent fuel, so we we should research it. But we should research it in properly, in competitive areas, not by just having politicians. Decide. Say, Fair enough. You know, now we've yeah. we've got eight minutes today. I told you we'll end up doing a part two with your permission. Listen, I'm I am going to promote the. I know you, 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 you spent some time in Cork. I know you've got ancestry there, so you'll understand the term. I'm going to promote the bejesus out of your book and, <laughs> and out of the YouTube channel as well. Um, right. No, I will do. Um, Water21 
that's without a gap. Water 21 is YouTube channel. Catchments and Carbon. It's a six-minute film. Go and look at it. There is a book called Catchments and Carbon, written by Lucian, but using the pen name Lois Caborn. You'll be proud of me as a fellow, as a fellow Paddy Lucian. I got it straight away. I got the uh, the the, uh, the 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 whole joke, the in joke. Of course, it's soil carbon, isn't it? Lois Caborn. Yeah. It's brilliant. I was proud of myself. I normally don't get stuff like that. Lois Caborn is soil carbon. The book is Catchments and Carbon. Lois Caborn. I will put links on the podcast notes and I urge our listeners to buy a copy of the book to watch the film. I know that I'll be inviting Lucy in back. But before, we've got seven and a half minutes now. Isabel says, Richie, fascinating to hear Lucian. Could you ask him for his take on how companies like Coca-Cola and industries like aluminium production have a responsibility for the disappearance of water in the soil. Major corporations have been taking water, haven't they, um, for years and years. Is this relevant to what you've been uh, sharing with us today, Lucian? Um, once you once you take the water out, your soil, not only your soil is dead, but it's what I was saying with the car. If you get the puncture of your car radiator, it will still go for a while, but you won't get very far before the whole thing breaks down. And that is what's happening. Um, now, if you remember the, uh, the figures that I did for, uh, in India, I mean, that was, what, 20, by, I said by 2025, absolute water scarcity, and that's what's happening. And 70, 70% is wasted. It's just thrown away dirty into the sea. Um, and we are dewatering the land. We should be managing all the catchments. That was the thing about the book. Um, so yes, they have a big responsibility for it, and it's it's basically profit-driven industry that doesn't really care about the people anymore. It certainly does not. Colin Colin makes yeah. a good point, and this goes to what Professor Ian Plymer would have said on the program. And I was going to ask you this anyway: if ice cores show us that there were periods on on Earth when the CO two levels were far far higher than they are now. Um, yet there was no agriculture back then. And Plymer mm-hmm. reckons we're in, we're in an interglaciation period, that sure. we're in between ice ages. Does that complement your work, do you think? Um, I think in Colin's opinion, anyway, he thinks it might be some sort of contradiction, the fact that we had massive CO2 in the atmosphere before agriculture. What do you say to that? No, uh, the world works on cycles. I mean, don't forget, at one time, you would have hot rock, and that was it. Yeah. Now, then you got some algae, and then you got some uh, fungi, and then they joined together and got on land and started dragging oxygen out of the air, and started build- and the fungi started dissolving the soil, um, and that gave us a mineral soil, and the algae brought in CO2. No, the Earth is a process that, without interference, will go through various epochs and periods. It's only when man gets involved that we disrupt that because we don't understand what, what we're doing. Yeah. Lucy, so I haven't found any of these things that actually 
go against what I've said. Yeah, When I've looked at it, it, it fits into the jigsaw. It fits into the overall jigsaw puzzle. Seamus says this, Richie, what Lucien talks about with the soil literally turning to dust seems consistent with the farming in America during the depression of the 1930s. The farmers of that era were, were heavily blamed for that catastrophe. Does Lucien know if the farmers in the 30s were using pesticides um, stroke herbicides? That's interesting. No, not as much, but you can do it by mass dosing of uh phosphorus and potassium and overdoing it with fertilizers. Don't forget, if you have a plant that's growing and it's in soil, it has to work very hard to take the nutrients out of the soil. If you start giving it all your additives, bone and phosphorus and all, it will say, oh, thank you very much, and it will stop working and it will just take that and they will grow very big um, but they, they stop working and, you, and the soil gets destroyed. So um, so they might have overdone the fertilisers in the 30s, maybe. Oh, yes. Oh, they the property. And on top of that, if you're growing cornflakes, then every packet of cornflakes is made from carbon, which is in the soil. If you're not putting that carbon back into the soil, you'll turn to sand. So you've actually got to put your castle on rotation with your cornflake production or whatever. So you, you you have to do a sort of organic rotation as they used to do. But they stopped doing it um, to, to mass produce just one thing. Just one crop. Good. That's right. I've read this many times in history books over the years, how they rotated crops uh, to, yeah. to, to preserve that which you've just explained. Ardo says, we've literally got two minutes left. I'd love to invite you back when you have time. It could be a couple of weeks' time whenever you have time because we can talk a little bit more about this but then we could talk about the implications for humanity because they want to use this this claim that fossil fuel burning and human activity is destroying the planet. You know, Lucian, they're using this claim to drastically transform life on planet Earth and they're making things far more dystopian yeah. and controlling. So, I mean, these are things we could get into. Um, Ardell says, Ardell says, Lucian makes a lot of sense. To me, modern compost is peat-free, but it is absolutely useless. As a grower, I've seen how these don't hold water anymore. It just passes straight through. That's from Ardell. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we're, we're going to hell in a handcart, as they say. So, but I, what annoys me is that I, work, I used to work at British Steel cleaning up some of their pollution. If somebody down in Newport, they'll know the big... Um, microbiological system that British Steel built, I designed it for them, to treat all their dirty water. And it breaks my heart to see the excuse of green energy to build an electric art furnace, scrap the blast furnaces, and scrap 3,000 people. 3,000 people who've got nothing to do now. It's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely disgraceful. Listen, we're, we're bang out of time, so let me do this, right? You have been listening to Professor Lucian Gill. 
there is a YouTube channel. Its name is Water21. Look for catchments and carbon. Don't panic because when the podcast is live in about 25 minutes time, I will put a direct link to the YouTube video. I will also put a link to Lucian's website where you can buy the book, right? He's used the pen name Lois Caborn. Um, and I do urge and I do recommend strongly that you do get the book. Um, it's been a pleasure to meet you. I'm, I'm so glad that my listeners, and I don't say this to patronise anybody, they're far, far um, more cutting edge than I am. They know what's going on. They know who to talk to. And they reached out and they said, Richie, get Lucy and on. So pleasure, Lucy. And I'll be in touch with you um, overnight. First of all, to thank you for coming on. And second of all, to arrange a follow-up with you. Because, listen, no exaggeration. Let me just look at the app. Um, I've got 25, 26 questions there and comments, and they're all good comments and questions that we could possibly get into. But um, thanks for your time. I'll give you the final word, but we've only got 30 seconds. So quick final word to you. And um, again, I appreciate you and your time. Thanks very much. And I don't know, yeah, that's very good of you. I'd be happy to come back and, and have more talks about it. It's got to be done because it is extremely serious. Lucy, and thanks Thank so much you. for your time today. God bless and, um, and we'll do it next time. Bye for now. Professor Lucy and Gill there live on Wednesday's Richie Allen show has worked in the industry. He he, he acknowledged that in cleanup, um, has um, degrees in uh, chemistry and physics in nuclear science. He's doctorate, uh, soil science, water. He's worked for the US government in nuclear cleanup. He's worked for the Chinese, the Malaysians and the Australians as well. He's got an impeccable employment record. I looked at all of this stuff up. So, you know, I could go after him if there was the opportunity to do so. Fascinating that. Thanks to him. Thanks to Jan at London as well. That's it for Wednesday's programme. It'll be online shortly, as I've already said. You and I will talk again uh, tomorrow at four o'clock. Before that, though, the Papers podcast will be online before 7.30 tomorrow morning. Until tomorrow, then. It's bye for me. Sloan Tommel. Bye. <laughs>